0: Well, hi, everybody. I am so glad that you're here with us uh, digitally. Uh, It's good to see um, people checking in, and uh, I hope you're all doing very well. Before I get started, I need to address something that occurred this week. Um, If you've been uh, paying attention to the news at all, or or maybe even if you've been avoiding the news, you still probably heard this. Governor Stitt has decided to uh, begin to reopen the Oklahoma economy beginning on May 1st. And uh, one of the segments of, that, um, uh, of, of his address included churches that starting on May 1, churches might, might be able to meet again. And I need to talk about that. <clears throat> Originally, our plan was to um, look at the circumstances surrounding COVID-19, the beginning part of June, and then decide on a course of action from there. Based on the numbers that we have been seeing, um, both nationally and also here in Oklahoma, frankly, I think May 1st is is premature. And I have not seen any evidence yet that would compel us to deviate from our original plan, which was to reevaluate everything on June 1st. So as of right now, uh, Thrive Church does not have any plans of meeting live in person at any venue at any size um, prior to June 1st. So all of the month of May, we're still planning on doing digital church services. That's a tough decision. It's one that we've talked about as a staff, as an executive team. We've, we have we want to make sure that everybody is as safe as, as they possibly can be. And we just think that right now... Um, prudence demands that we go through the month of May this way now reserve the right to change your minds <laughs> based on new data and obviously we we pay attention to those things and uh, if circumstances change then then we'll announce that but as of right now just so that you know and can settle some own thing uh, your settle your own heart on this we don't have any plans in meeting in in May and we will continue to do these things digitally I hope that you're enjoying them I hope that you're finding them meaningful as always uh, I know that we've, enjoyed the process of learning how to do uh, digital church better. So um, it's not ideal, uh, but it's certainly better than nothing. And uh, we at least we get a chance to interact a little bit online. So keep that in mind. June 1st is the, the day that we'll reevaluate. Now, in the meantime, here's the thing. I'm, I'm going to ask you to please pray for Thrive Church. Please pray for our leadership that we would have wisdom about all of this that we would, um, we would would keep safety in mind and that we would truly be prudent about these things. <clears throat> it's important that we do that. Um, but the other, the other piece of the puzzle is, would you please pray that God would do the work in the hearts and minds of Thrive Church um, during this period of waiting? I know it's hard. I know it's a difficult thing to do. You want to see people. I totally get that. But I do think that God doesn't waste waiting. I think that he does something in us. And so whatever that happens to be, ask God to, to begin to work um, in that way. And I, I think that that we have an opportunity here to really follow God and listen closely and listen carefully. So please pray in that regard. And I'm going to thank you, all of you in advance, for doing that. really appreciate it. Now, speaking of prayer, obviously we're doing a series on prayer right now. Um, and last week, if you recall, I asked everyone to commit to five minutes every single day. <clears throat> just five minutes. So here's a question. How did you do? How did you do with praying for five minutes every single day, the last uh, seven days? How'd it go? Did you do all right? Here's what I want you to do, just to kind of um, help us gauge how this went. Because if we were live, I'd have you raise your hand and all that kind of thing. So since we can't do that, uh, I'll have you do something else. If you were able to, okay, if you were able to do five minutes for seven days, if that was you, kudos to you. I'm glad that you did, but do me a favor and give us some love. Give us a little heart. Okay. On Facebook, it's easier i you on Facebook. Uh, If you're watching on the Thrive Church uh, website, you probably aren't going to be able to do this, but if you're on Facebook, go ahead and give us a heart. If you could do five minutes every single day. Okay. Now, some of you were able to do five minutes a couple of days and maybe you forgot or maybe you got busy or whatever. That, that happens too. If that's you, then I want you to give, give us a thumbs up, okay? So heart if you were able to do all seven days and a thumbs up if you did a couple of days. Five minutes, okay? Now, let's say that um, you didn't do as well as you really wanted to and uh, maybe you need another week. Maybe you need to try this one more time. If that's you, go ahead and do the little laugh button. I think it's a little smiley face that's laughing. Aha ha! I think is what it's called. Uh, so give us that emoji. So heart if you were able to do five minutes all seven days. Thumbs up if you did five minutes a couple of days. And aha ha if uh, if you need if you need another another try at this. You need need to take another run at it. And by the way, there's no judgment here. I just want you to connect with a good father who loves you. And so if, you're, if we got nothing but ha-has, that's okay. I just want you to encourage you to go ahead and, and try one more time. Just try it. Try it again. Uh, last week, too, we saw in um, Luke's biography of Jesus this progression. Um, maybe you, you, you remember it. If not, that's okay. I'm, I'm going to put it back up on the screen so that you can see it. Um, we started with the story of the Good Samaritan. And in that, um, Jesus uses this little story that he kind of created apparently on the spot to describe um, what a neighbor was. He's having this conversation with another religious leader. You know, who is who is my neighbor? And so he tells a story. And he commends um, the behavior of the the Samaritan. That's the one being the neighbor. And so Jesus highlights that. But then... Immediately following the story of the Good Samaritan, this interaction with a religious leader, Jesus um, goes to the home of Mary and Martha. And and you probably remember this. Martha's busy making sure everybody's got got food and and beverage, and Mary's just sitting there, and Martha's not happy about it. And really this is about uh, not necessarily chastising Martha, but rather Jesus pointing out to Martha that he's commending Mary's behavior, spending the time with Jesus. And that was the important uh, thing. Not that, you know, everybody's got a full, full cup, but rather that the people were spending time with Jesus while he was there. You know, I've, I've noticed something over the years. Uh, I've been doing this for a while, and I've, I've noticed this, that there are some people who are just naturally wired to care for others. You know, they're kind of the Martha types—not I mean, always, but but they're just—they're just naturally that way. They're the ones who see the person sitting off in the corner. They're the ones who um, uh, tend to notice uh, homeless people when a lot of people are just kind of walking by them and don't see them at all. Uh, they're the ones who care an awful lot about the oppressed and the down and out. And and what I've noticed about people who are naturally wired that way is they tend to get frustrated. When others don't see the same need that they do, and, uh, and I understand that, um, my guess is that probably somewhere between twenty and twenty-five percent of any given group of Christians probably fall in that category. They tend to to um, uh, gravitate towards things like social justice, and uh, they uh, they want to they want to be doing um, want to be serving out in the community and trying to meet needs and. Take care of things. And I think um, Luke is making a point here. It's one that we need to pay attention to. To get to the same behavior of the good Samaritan, we need to be in the presence of Jesus. He's commending the uh, behavior of the Samaritan. And he's commending the behavior of Mary, who's spending time at the foot of Jesus. And I think those two things go together. I really do. I think it's an important thing that there has to be a heart change. And the place that the heart changes the most is when we are in the presence of God, when we learn how to listen and to respond to the things that we hear. And my guess is is that over a, a period of time, at least in my experience, that when I've spent more time with Jesus, my heart gravitates to those things where there's broken and oppressed and those things that, that, that need the hands and feet of Jesus to intervene. So keep that in mind, that there's, there's something that's going on here. And some people are just naturally wired that way, but not everybody. In fact, I would say the majority of people are not. And that's why we need that heart change in order to be even aware of the needs that are out there. So those of you who, who gravitate in that direction, who tend to be feeling that way, hey, pray for your brothers and sisters, that they would be in the presence of God and God would get a hold of their hearts and that God would um, help them um, see the need. that would open their eyes to the things that are around them, that they would want to get involved uh, because of their, the love they experience for Jesus would fill them up and, and can flow to someone else. So keep keep that in mind. I, I think I think that's true of virtually every church that I've ever served. Is that you've got this natural group, and everyone else needs the presence of God to help help them get there. Fact of the matter, it's not either or. It's both and. We need both those things. Because um, I think sometimes you can get so wrapped up in your natural bend towards the broken and the oppressed, that you forget about the presence of God, too. Everybody needs the presence at some point. And for us, and and like Luke and Luke's audience, who didn't necessarily have Jesus physically present with them anymore, um, it requires that we spend time in prayer. I mean, that that really is uh, where this is moving towards, I think, you have this progression of stories within the text, and ultimately it lands at the Lord's Prayer. And so I'm going to invite you to join me in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to spend our time, and we're going to pick up the story of the Good Samaritan. Oh, sorry, the, uh, not the Good Samaritan. We're, <laughs> uh, we're going to pick up the story of the Lord's Prayer uh, and hopefully shed some light on some of these other other stories. So keep that in mind. So I'm going to begin in verse uh, 1, chapter 11, verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, I love this statement, teach us to pray. In fact, that's what we spent our time on last week, teach us to pray. Jesus' practice was noticed by his disciples. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. To Luke, it didn't matter. Um, but his disciples noticed that this practice that he had and said, okay, can, can you teach us how to do it? And, and remember that in, in ancient Israel, when a rabbi like Jesus would call a group of disciples, it's not like we think in, uh, in Western civilization about education. Because for, for most of us, you know, we, we would go to class and it was about knowledge transfer. We would learn something from a person and, and, and it was a group of skills or it was a particular technique or a certain philosophy or whatever it happened to be. But in ancient Israel, if you were called by a rabbi, the point wasn't to know what the rabbi knew, but rather to be like the rabbi to actually think and behave and to love and to care about the, the rabbis, to be like that person, to emulate them to a certain extent. And they're they're seeing Jesus praying. It's like, can you teach us how to do that? It's important. But then there's a little uh, little kind of side note here. Just as John taught his disciples. So you have Jesus and his cousin, John the Baptist, that's who they're talking about here, have Disciples, they are both rabbis, a very specific type of rabbi. And those rabbis would often teach um, very specific prayers to their disciples. Apparently John had done that because the disciples of Jesus and John had talked to each other. And so they were noticing Jesus pray, hey, teach us to do this. And by the way, John's disciples uh, do that too. There's uh, an idea here that we have to keep in mind. Um, When we read the Lord's Prayer, just in a moment, it bears the resemblance to other rabbinic prayers. We we actually have a collection of them. Um, And uh, if you read what, what Jesus taught his disciples and you read what some of the other rabbinic prayers are, you can see the similarities to it. And you have to understand, this is not about competition. And I think that's what we think. Well, well John's disciples are doing it, why can't we? Um, that's not what's going on here. But, but rather, specific prayers taught by the, the rabbi were anchors um, of a sort for beliefs and practices that they would have together as a group. Think of it this way. The prayer served as uh, a marker for identity. John's disciples prayed this way. Jesus' disciples wanted to learn how he prayed. Does that make sense? So it's not a competitive thing, but rather it was something to do with identity. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, Lord, teach us to pray because that's what rabbis do. And um, like like John's disciples, because we want to, we want to be your disciples, and John's done it. Could you please do it as well? It's an important thing to remember, and and the truth of the matter is, is that uh, a lot of us grew up in churches where we learned the Lord's Prayer, right? We learned these things, and and we can say it. You know, we've learned it by rote. And the real question that we have is, do you say, um, "Forgive us our debts" or "Forgive us our trespasses"? Right? <laughs> you you know, um, some of you know that uh, when when you're in a large group of people. Uh, you start saying the prayer together, and all of a sudden, at that point in the prayer, everybody's voices go real low because they're not sure which word they're going to use, right? They're not sure if, if it's going to be debts or trespasses. And it's a point of identity for a lot of us, and, uh, and I think that that's ancient. I think that's just built into human beings. So let's, let's go on and actually look at the prayer. Jesus says, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name holy be your name your kingdom come give us each day our daily bread forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation now this sounds a little bit different than probably what you grew up memorizing at least uh, for the for the most part it's very very simple in fact this is likely the most original form uh, this is the stripped-down version that Luke had gathered from a group of people who heard Jesus teach this, and so when he wrote it down, uh, this is he got down to the essence of it, and this is it. And it's it's actually um, when you kind of read it through this way, uh, it's not what I would call poetic. It doesn't flow real easy, but it does hit some some major points, and um, there's you're as you're reading this, you're probably thinking about your memorized version in your head going, wait a minute, this sound, sounds a little bit different. But really, all the elements are there. So let's take a look at this uh, in in part. Let's pull it apart and, and try to understand it. In the first section, we have this, Father, holy be your name, your kingdom come. And in this, you have an acknowledgement of, of, of God as Father. And if I'm not mistaken, um, this would have been Kind of new Yahweh, Adonai, was God. And here Jesus is using a slightly more familiar term. He's saying, Father, Father, holy be your name. This is an element of worship. It's an acknowledgment of who he is. There's worship. And then he says, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. I've said this before and you've, you've, some of you will remember this, but I often talk to people and they want to know what God's will is for something that's going on. They want to, i uh, just waiting to hear what God's will is. God's will is always the same. And here it is. God's will is always the kingdom of God. Always. He's always about expanding the kingdom, building the kingdom. He builds it, builds it we get to be a part of it but he's the one who's building his kingdom that's his will always and so here in these opening couple of phrases we have we have worship and we have the will of God your kingdom come and if you think about this this is really spending the first moments of your prayer aligning with God i'm putting God first holy he is holy and secondly he has a will and I want to align those things. So however you're choosing to pray, if you're just doing it for your five minutes, you can say this. This is this is a great way to begin. But think of it as how do I align my heart with God when I start my prayers? How do I actually do that? How do I um, think in terms of changing my heart to match where his happens to be? It's alignment, worship and his will and acknowledging that and putting it first. So keep that in mind. Yes. Yeah. Your kingdom come. The next it says, give us each day our daily bread. This is asking God for provision because we still need to eat. H- have you ever heard the term they're so heavenly minded they, they they're they doing no earthly good? Well, at the end of the day you, you still have to eat and you're kids want to eat and if your kids are anything like my kids they want to eat more than ramen noodles right they want they want something and so we we depend on God for what it is that we need and I still think that this is a physical thing but I think it could also be a spiritual thing too God what is it that I need today I need provision to be a citizen of your kingdom and that might be in the form of food but it also might be in the form of encouragement or or, um, support or empowerment to do something. But it's ultimately about provision. So you first align with God, and second, you ask him for the provision that you need to do whatever it is that you're aligning with. So provision and alignment are the first two parts of this. Give us each day our daily bread. Now... As we move on to the next segment, it gets interesting. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Remember this, right? Okay. Well, there's something that's going on in the language here that we need to pay very close attention to, because I think it changes how we understand how this prayer actually works. And I want you to see this. <clears throat> so let's see if we can pull this apart. Forgive us our sins. Now, the word in Greek here is the actual word for sin. And it, it translates as such. We find it all throughout the New Testament. So forgive us our sins. Yes, I you're holy. I need provision. And please forgive me of my sin. Because I, I can't continue to do your will, to be aligned with you if I still have sin in my heart. So forgive us our sins. This makes perfect sense. But then on uh, the next phrase, tax another, uh, another idea onto this. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now, there's a certain amount of logic to this, so that if we receive forgiveness, then we need to forgive someone else's sin. And I don't disagree with this. And in fact, other people, um, uh, stories in in the other gospels about the uh, the Lord's prayer deal with that very issue this the idea of forgiving and being forgiven, but not in Luke. There's something different that's happening here, and you'll notice that I put the word sins in a, in a different color because it's not the same word as the as the sins above. It's something entirely different. In fact, I think a better translation is as we also forgive everyone indebted to us. Indebted to us. It's not sin. Forgive our, us our sins, for we also forgive everyone indebted to us. You now, there's a cultural thing here. There's a history here that you need to understand. This is very specific. Please remember, None of the, the Bible, not one word, was written in a vacuum. None of it. There's always a historical context to it that we need to understand because it illuminates parts of the, of, of the Scripture for us. We have a better understanding of it. Forgive us our sins. Yes, that's okay. But for, uh, for we also forgive everyone indebted to us. And the word indebted is what's important here. So let me see if I can explain this. <clears throat> Every culture culture has a context. There is uh, um, something in play. Let let me give you an example. Uh, We often use the language of business in the United States largely because of our cultural context. We understand transactions. We understand exchanges. We understand business. Here's a great example. Uh, When you're talking to someone and they're saying something to you you don't agree with and say, well, I don't buy that argument. See, there are certain bits and pieces of language that have made it into our everyday conversation. We get business. It is part of our cultural context. There was something very different in play in ancient Roman uh, Mediterranean world. Something else entirely different. And it's often called the patron-client relationship. And so the society is built on a a relatively simple set of of relationships where every person has both a patron and a client. Every person has somebody uh, that's looking out for them And every person has someone else that they're looking out for, at least within the middle class and above. Uh, Lower class may be a little bit different. But this idea of patron and client was pervasive throughout the Mediterranean world. And you can find a lot of evidence um, to this. Usually, uh, I would say almost always, people would recognize that the ultimate patron was Caesar himself. And Caesar... um, was uh, supposed to look out for all of his clients and everybody owed something to their patron, Caesar. And it's kind of like a big pyramid scheme, just kind of spread out from there. And so you have a patron client. Um, I I came up uh, with with this idea, this model, um, found something similar to it and I thought it works very well. So the patron would provide money and protection and access uh, to certain things for their client. And at the same time, that client owed back to the patron loyalty, uh, gratitude, and frankly, political support. So you can see how this relationship would work. The client was always indebted to the patron. And the patron always had some type of debt from a client. And you can see that uh, now on the screen here, if you had a client, they were probably a patron to someone else and someone else and on down the line patron-client, this give and take. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, but please understand there was somebody who always had more power than the other, patron-client relationship. And we see this over and over again, uh, historically speaking, but here it seems to be in play in the Lord's Prayer because you have a debt, patron-client relationship. Everyone had a patron who would provide favors. And everyone had a client, somebody who owed you something. Um, I like to think of it in some ways like Downton Abbey. How many of you have watched that? Uh, there's definitely upstairs people and downstairs people, right? There's a social caste system. And this is very similar. There's a social caste that's going on. Patron and client, patron and client, patron and client, all the way up, up to Caesar. And it's just so pervasive. So we know that these things exist culturally, and this is what happens to be in play here. But please understand, Caesar is everyone's patron. You have to keep that in mind. And here Jesus says something very specific. Very specific. Forgive us our sins, and we forgive those indebted to us. So if you have a, parent, a patron-client relationship, and you're the patron, and you forgive the debt, What happens? The whole system begins to break down. The patron is doing something not to incur a debt from the client, but he's essentially, he or she is giving something away. You remove yourself from patronage the moment that you forgive the debt. And what Jesus, I think, is ultimately saying here, don't play the game. Don't play the cultural game where one is always indebted to the other. What place, uh, Another place, uh, another place in, this, in the text, Jesus says, what you have freely been given, freely give. That's new. That would have been electrifying to this crowd of people. Don't play the patron-client game because you're just playing into the hands of an ult- ultimate patron. And the fact of the matter is, it's not Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. See how this is all beginning to fit together? There is a cultural thing that's going on here. You know, don't do transaction, don't do exchange, don't do debt. Remove yourself from the game. Don't ultimately play it. I think that's an important thing to remember. This is this would have been shocking to that group of people, and, and Jesus is including it in his prayer. Yes, align yourself with God, ask for his provision, make sure that you're holy, but don't play the game that everyone else is playing. Don't do that. I'm going to forgive those debts, I'm not going to play it. And then finally, the last line, I really like this, and lead us not into temptation. For the longest time, I had a problem with this, especially when I was growing up. I grew up in the Lutheran church, and in the Lutheran church, we, this is exactly what we said. We used the word trespasses, and we said lead us not into temptation. I never understood that. Why would God lead us into something bad? Well, here's the interesting thing. That particular word also carries with it the idea of trial. And lead us not into trials. In other words, please keep us from having to go through trial, Lord. Yes, forgive us, forgive us our sin. Help us to be holy. We're not going to play the game. And oh God, it's the equivalent of asking for protection. It's okay to ask for protection. It's okay to ask God to say, Oh God, please don't, please don't allow you know make me have to go through some type of faith event that'll uh, ah, the pain okay to not want pain now if God chooses to to uh, test you in some way or or to use your circumstances to test you that's up to him but but it's perfectly okay to say God please protect me from that and by the way don't go looking for it don't go looking for it life has enough of it on its own you don't need to ask for that and so it's perfectly say oh God please don't leave me into trials you know protect me from those those kinds of things and then afterwards, he gives us uh, after he, he uh, gives us the actual format of the prayer. When you pray, here are the things that you say. This idea of aligning and this idea of provision, um, and the idea of forgiveness and, uh, and protection. After all of that, he gives us two very quick visuals. I think these are important uh, for us to to think about. Here it is in, in verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine uh, on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. And Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, he Uh, Yet, because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. It's a strange story. You know, we have this idea about about prayer, and then he tells a story about a person who's not going to give you bread out of friendship, but out of your audacity. He makes this comment in verse 9, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And, And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Can you imagine this scene? Can you imagine how this is playing out? It's actually kind of a humorous story. Bang, 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 bang. Almost like sitcom type of material. Our friend Thomas Cahill, who I mentioned last week, um, makes the observation that a good, even if reluctant, uh, friend will eventually help you. And oh, by the way, God is more generous. That's what Jesus is saying here. Look, your audacity, your shameless activity banging on the door. Yes, your friend will give it to you. By the way, God, he's more generous. And then immediately after that, we have this. And you've you've probably seen this one before. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? You know this story, right? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? That's just odd, right? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And it's the same kind of thing. Even a friend that you have um, is reluctant. Even if they're reluctant, they're still going to help you. And God is more generous. But at the same time, even if a father who might be undemonstrative in his love will give uh, his kids uh, something good and decent, yeah, God is more loving than you can possibly imagine. So Jesus is saying, pray. Pray because God is more generous and God is more loving. And here's here's the point to all of this. This is the thing that I want you to understand. This is the thing that I want you to take away from all of this. I want you to, to, to think in these terms. Ask boldly. Ask boldly when you go to pray. Think about this. Pray for the sick. Ask for healing. Seek restoration You're a a citizen of the kingdom and you serve the king. And what is it that he might want to do? You're looking for the kingdom because you already said this. Your kingdom come, right? We want his will. So, So ask boldly for those things. The compassion and mercy of God press into it. He's a generous friend. He's a good, loving father. And the question ultimately is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Some people I've heard say that in order to have your prayers answered, you have to learn how to pray right. You have to pray correctly. Um, Or they might say, and I've heard this, and probably you have too, is that you have to believe enough. you got to have faith. And you got to have more faith. Look, here's the deal. It's not how you pray. Jesus gave us this format. And it includes things like worship and and alignment and provision. It includes all of those things. But it's not how you pray. God gets you. He understands how you're going to ask for things. And he'll, he'll comprehend what it is that you're ultimately asking out of your heart. It's not about a formula. And it's not how much you believe. Do you have a certain amount of faith? It's almost like the, the the idea here is grit your teeth and just believe more and maybe you know God'll answer your prayer. Because what you have right now isn't cutting it somehow. Look, again, God gets you. He understands where you are. It's not about how you pray. And it's not about how much faith you supposedly have. But really, answered prayer is about who you believe in. It's not how, it's who. Rearrange the letters. It's who do you believe in? You want to change the world? Do some good? Then you need to spend, with time, you need to spend your time with Jesus because Jesus is what changes the heart. You know, if you want to move from the Good Samaritan, if you want to see that, then you have to move to Mary and Martha and you have to be like, like Mary. The behavior is changed when the heart is changed. And to do that, for us, we have to pray. And and here's my definition of prayer. It's so easy, but it's so complex at the same time. Prayer is simply talking with God. Now notice I said with. It's not talking at God. It's not talking to God. It is talking with God. It is a conversation where there is um, dialogue. You're saying and listening at the same time. Keep that in mind. You are talking with God. God. And so last week, you know, I wanted you to pray five minutes. And some of you need to try that again, and that's okay. Well, this weekend, I want you to do something else. I want you to pray for your five minutes, but spend some of that time just listening. I know that one's hard. It's hard for me too. I typically, when I sit down, um, I use a journal when I pray. And when I do that, I usually have a hundred things going through my mind uh, all at the same time. And there are moments where I just have to go, God, I'm sorry. What I really need um, to do is to listen. What is it that you want to say? Sometimes he speaks, sometimes he doesn't. But when he does, when he does speak, I have something where I can write it down so I can remember I can hang on to that. So... Go into Luke chapter 11 this week. Look at the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you start with that one. And at the end of it, you just simply say, God, is there something you want me to know? Is there something you want me to say? And don't just listen for a couple of minutes. It's fine. If you've got, if you've got a, you know, a watch that you're looking at and you only have five minutes, that's fine. But notice that God might speak to you throughout the rest of the day too. That's okay. Have an opportunity to write down the things that you hear. And it might be real subtle, but the idea is to learn his voice so that you can have that conversation with him. I believe that you will. I believe these are prayers that God wants to answer. I think this is the type of relationship that he has in mind for all of us. And so this week, five minutes, but spend some time listening. Let's pray. Lord Jesus thank you that you want to speak to us thank you that you have taught your disciples how to pray and that you have <laughs> you have told us that that god who is listening is a generous god and a loving god and we want to press into that because we need to hear those things especially in an environment where it's a little scary when there's a lot of unknown and a lot of uncertainty we need to know that you're generous and that you're loving and and, and to lean into that on a daily basis. And so I pray for every person who is going to take the commitment seriously to pray for five minutes, that somehow you would speak to them in a way that they would understand. I believe that you get us, that you'll speak to us in a way that we'll understand, and that each person here will hear from you in some way, and it will surprise them. And God, um, give us the courage to actually commit to just five minutes and allow it to build from there. God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you're guiding us. I thank you that we can meet together digitally even though we can't meet in person. Protect us from the coronavirus. Lord, I pray that we would not have to go through that trial. And Lord, also protect us from the economic challenges that are sure to follow all of this that are beginning to even now. Oh God, we, uh, we are so glad you're merciful and compassionate. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name, amen.